I am a human rights attorney, and a, I head an organization called World Service Authority, which has its headquarters in Washington, D.C. I've been with the organization about 25 years now. Sure. Well, World Service Authority is the administrative branch of a government called the World Government of World Citizens, or more recently, we've been just dubbing it the World Citizen Government, which is a government that was founded back in 1953 by a man named Gary Davis, who had renounced his U.S. citizenship back in 1948. And he tried to travel around the world with no documents, simply as a world citizen, but he found that he kept getting arrested just because he had no documents. So he said, well, to himself, what can I do to change this situation, to, to protect myself and my rights? And he said, well, citizens... Uh, in the world who are within nations generally have a government that will protect them. But as a stateless person, he did not. So he said, well, I need to do something that will help me. Why don't I create a government and then documentation that represents me? And that's what he did between 1953 and 54 was create this world citizen government and then the World Service Authority. But it wasn't just out of thin air. Back in 1949 and 1950, he had established a registry in Paris that registered almost a million people uh, as world citizens. Uh, who were issued world citizen identification cards. And that, that actually is a process that World Service Authority continues to today. Excellent. How does this world citizens utilize the UN's human rights declaration? You might say that the Declaration of Human Rights, which just celebrated its uh, 68th anniversary just a few days ago, is our constitution. Uh, and I know in other shows you've talked about natural law. And you yes. might say that the universal, yes, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is uh, very close to uh, a, a perfect, uh, well, not completely perfect, but pretty close to perfect elaboration of those universal moral principles that we as one human family should be living by. I mean, I know that you've talked about uh, natural law, meaning more on the lines of you should do uh, no harm mm -hmm. and you should make sure that no harm is done to others and uh, keep your word. You've yeah. also talked about it uh, in a, you know, a more economic uh, way when you mentioned property. Uh, I wouldn't go towards the property viewpoint when we talk about natural law. I would keep it with those two, two or three principles of do no harm, have, make sure no harm is done to others uh, if you can, and uh, keep to your word. We act as a government, you might say, in microcosm, not right. yet fully in macrocosm. Uh, and that's because we can provide some amount of services to the world citizenry out in the world, such as the world passport or the world ID card, or for refugees, the world political asylum card. We even have a legal department that backs up the validity of our documents. But there's millions of people that we cannot get to on a day-to-day -day basis, just really because of lack of sufficient funding to do all the projects that we have set up but are not fully functioning at this point. Well, we've been registering people, as I said, uh, unofficially, you might say, between 1949 and 1951 or two through the registry and then starting in 1954 at World Service Authority. On a day-by-day -day basis, you might say we're planting the seeds for the fully function functioning uh, macrocosmic world governmental system that we would like. And a classic... Uh, um, example of, of us pushing this idea, this or this world citizenship ideology, you might say, forward, is the idea of creating a world court of human rights. And I'm working with uh, attorneys 
uh, around the world uh, with legal advocates and some justices of some courts to create a, actually a world court of human rights that does not yet exist beyond the International Court of Justice, which is only for nation states, and the International Criminal Court, which is only to deal with war crimes or genocide. But we do need a human rights court because right now where you're located in Asia, that's about 60% of the world's population. And there's not even a regional human rights system there. So if we can establish, you might say, in a, if you're looking at government as a tripartite system, is, at least that's what we have uh, here in the United States, uh, with an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial, judicial branch, well, the judicial branch, the, this World Court of Human Rights, would be, the, you might say, the, the first big step to a fully functioning global governmental system. <laughs> sure. Well, Gary Davis would always say to people, look, whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, you are already a world citizen. And of course, I look at it from the legal side standpoint of it, and that is most citizenship is based on jus soli or jus sanguinis, meaning the uh, right of the land and the right of the blood. And we would say we're already, like you just said, uh, Peter, we're already world citizens because we are born on planet Earth of human parents. We're all biologically human. And because we, we really sort of to be able to survive, we have to interact with one another in a communal framework. That's what makes us the citizens. And because our communal framework now is global, that's what makes us automatically world citizens by birth and in fact. But when you register through World Service Authority, what you're doing is taking that, you might say, symbolic or by birth status and legally, officially and politically claiming it. Let me just state one other point here about this before we move on, and that is when you register as a world citizen, you do not give up any lower level allegiance. In fact, the point of world citizenship is to help us to celebrate those lower level allegiances and classifications that we've either come into just by birth or that we've chosen, uh, and we want to celebrate them rather than fight over them. And that's, that's why world citizenship is adding, you might say, a higher coherence to any other status or identity that we might have. When the International Criminal Court came into being and, and uh, focused on the idea of a crime against humanity, sort of like what the Nuremberg Tribunal had done, mm -hmm. that makes, you might say, humanity legal. If you can have a crime against it, and that would be, you know, the, the, ma the most massive crime against humanity would be, for example, a, a, like a nuclear holocaust, uh, total global destruction where you've actually you could say killed humanity. And, and it doesn't necessarily have to, have to happen, obviously, through nuclear holocaust. It could be through environmental destruction, where we have uh, so much uh, sea levels that are rising so much that all the nation states that we live in are underwater. I mean, that, that, that we're coming to uh, sort of that kind of frightening conclusion. And so it's important that we get our act together, I would say, and, and really start governing our world beyond the way we've, we've tried to do it so far. The World Passport affirms everyone's innate, that is born with, and unalienable, meaning you can't give it up, right to freedom of travel. And that right has also been reaffirmed in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, in Article 13, and Article 12 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is a binding treaty on the majority of countries in the world because they've all almost all signed it. So there, it has a uh, its basis in this fundamental right, but it's also not only symbolic and based upon rights, but it is a practical tool in that over 185 countries, almost 95% of all the world's countries have placed either a visa, entry, or exit stamp in the world passport, at least on one occasion, but for the majority of countries on many, many occasions. Of course, it's, it's best recognized in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean, 
Eastern Europe and the Middle East. In other regions of the world, usually the, the, the countries that are the most uh, wealthy countries, you might say, that's where it's probably the most difficult because those are the countries that have the most restrictions against the right to freedom of travel, even though those same countries have agreed to respect it. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm in the media, you're in the media, who, who isn't in the media anymore? And right. of course, we know that if something is sensational, that's what's going to get readership. Uh, so it is a, it's almost a business principle that you have to sort of sell your, your paper or your uh, radio show, your podcast, whatever it might be, mm. with, with something a little bit more interesting than just you know, the good story about how, how we're helping our fellow human, right? <laughs> so unfortunately, over the, the years, uh, I would say that media reporters get a hold of the idea that either because they've spoken to a government official who is not correct about it, who says, oh, that's false, and false meaning intentionally or knowingly untrue or untrue by mistake. It, it isn't. It's, it's a valid and legal document and, and wouldn't have this recognition by all of these countries if it were a quote-unquote false document. But, you know, what I like to also quote here is, is what Gary Davis would say, and that is every document, in a sense, is a joke. Every document is really just a human construct. If mm. um, you know, if tomorrow Google decided to buy um, America, it, it probably has enough money to do so. <laughs> it could buy it, and we would no longer be "quote unquote" Americans. We would be Googleians, and we would have a Google passport. So right. <laughs> it, it's just a human construct. So you could say every, you might say every password is really false. But I would argue that the World Password is the most, if you can say it, real password because. It is a document that affirms everyone's human right to freedom of travel and to freedom of identification, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter how much money you have in your pocket, it doesn't matter. It's an affirmation of an innate and inalienable right, whereas the national password, on the other hand, is a divisive document. It separates you and me and everyone from each other by saying, well, you can't come in because you weren't born here, or you can't come in because you don't have enough money in your bank account. You know, that, that's what the national passport is doing. It's not affirming a right. It's actually only uh, affirming, if you can call it even affirming, a civic privilege. That is, uh, it's a privilege that can be granted or denied by a national government. A human right can't be granted or, or denied. It could be restricted, but a human right cannot be granted or denied because we're born with them. And that's what this world passport is showing to the world uh, a, a status that we can have as world citizens that would affirm our universal rights and not just simply uphold local civic privileges. And we've never ever had any kind of funding from any national government, from any corporation, from any major foundation. It's always been the global public, which I think is a great way to fund right. because the only people we ever have to accommodate is you, that is everybody, the global public. And, and that's the way it should be. A, a world governmental system must be of, by, and, and for or through the, the people of the world, whether it's uh, direct democracy, which I think would maybe kind of difficult, although a lot less difficult with technology nowadays, or more on the republic side where you know there is still some form of representation of, of people. Uh, e either way, it's a question of, of coming to some kind of... of link that would prevent the kind of, like you're saying, control by a few or, or even one like wealthy donor. We would never right. want to see that happen. I know I don't. 
uh, that would be scary. I mean, certainly that does happen even within national governments. In fact, sometimes it's the, the leaders of those national governments who become so empowered and so wealthy that they can dictate. And that's not the kind of global governmental system that, that we would want. And, not, and I wouldn't even call that a global governmental system. I would, would call that more of a dictatorship. So certainly the effort is to install constitutional and legal processes that are participatory. That's, that's how I see it.